I apologise. <laughs> Maybe better that that's the part of the introduction missed. But however, you can picture it. But Matthew writes from the perspective that he's a Jew, as well as a tax collector, so he writes to a Jewish audience largely. And that influences the way that I believe the Spirit worked upon him. And he takes, like a tax collector, an audit of all that Jesus did. And then he meticulously puts it down in a certain order. And he puts it down in a certain order because the Holy Spirit guided him to do that. And I've been fascinated. At first when Alec asked me to come, I thought, oh, that's fine. Um, we'll have uh, the first of the Advent Sundays. And then I checked the calendar. And the first of the Advent Sundays, if you were being going in that direction, is next week. So I had to retrack. Uh, but it made me look at Matthew's Gospel. Uh, just as I was preparing for what I thought was going to be Advent. But here's the point. That led me to look and read more. And I was fascinated the way Matthew had constructed or been led to construct his gospel. <coughs> and many of you will know that it has five major discourses. And I'm trying to get through this quickly because it's not overly significant. He has five great discourses. And he has five discourses, and then he has attached to each of them. After he tells of, if you like, some doctrine, theology, or whatever way you want to describe it, he then gets on with the practicalities. So I was led to this first one. I was led to this first part. But the one thing that came out to me was this. Matthew was concerned about getting across to his Jewish audience that the one they were looking for, the one they thought would come as a king, in fact came as a king. Although he had a humble birth in a Bethlehem stable manger. And we can imagine all that and we get it all very, very picturesque and cards and so on and so forth. But he starts where he goes to end. He begins to say, the king and here is his lineage. And if we read his lineage, it's a kingly lineage. Beginning with Abraham, who in his day would have been recognized almost as a king. Where he was in all of the Chaldees. And then when you read, the, it's king after king or certain ones of the king reign. And especially guided by the spirit, there's King David. Because he was going to be known as King David's greater son. And then it's interesting to read of the Gentile influence or participation in it. Because Ruth's there as the mother of Obed. And eventually David. And of course we get to the end and we have another lady mentioned. One who is highly favoured. And we cannot forget that she's highly favoured as far as God is concerned. Not perhaps in the way that she's eulogised. But it's quite clear. These two ladies are mentioned. Vital participants, if you like, in God's plan. So the genealogy of the king is given. And then he goes on. And then John the Baptist begins to declare the kingdom of God is at hand. 
So Matthew's emphasis is established from chapter 1 right to the end. He's talking about the king and the king's kingdom. Because where there is a king, there is always a kingdom. And that's the emphasis that I want to take a little bit this morning. Because it comes to the first of the discourses. And the first of the discourses begins in chapter 5. And it's known and heralded as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, my son-in-law and his, my wife, his wife, my daughter, has been in the Holy Land recently. Uh, and uh, he was fascinated and told us. He couldn't find, well, I'll not say he couldn't find, because some of you have already been there for yourselves, a mount. Well, it may have been a high mount, I'm not quite sure. But Phil said, it didn't look as though it was a high mount, but it was an elevated position. But that's beside the point. It was there Jesus set himself down and preached this sermon. Now, I'm not going to dispute if it was the sermon all in one, because I don't want to try and go through the sermon in the mount. We would be here not just one day, we would be here a lot of days and a lot of hours. But having said that, it's a vitally important part because now that he's been identified as the king, he's setting out his manifesto his declaration of intent as to how the kingdom would operate or should operate. Not so much in a political sense that he would introduce uh, a health service or any other thing. But he would setting out the principle of how the citizens of that kingdom ought to live. He was giving a description about what their attitude should be. He was giving a description of what their actions should be, uh, what their conduct, what their relationship and responsibility should be, what the matters of faith and practice should be, including how they should pray and about what they should pray, about fasting, what their ambitions should be and what their anxieties uh, might be, but how they should be dealt with and faced. But they were also faced with decisions and conclusions, how they should deal with those in their relationships and their judgments. So we see that it's important to come to this gospel, this this Sermon on the Mount. We could go through it and go through every part and parcel of it. But we note particularly the emphasis of the kingdom. I had down here, uh, apart from the five major discourses, about 50 times, at least 50 times uh, in uh, the gospel, uh, the word kingdom is referred to, or the kingdom of heaven about 35 times. He's referred as the son of David uh, about seven times. And that that it would be that he would fulfill uh, the prophecies. And we could call it, it's the coming king. Uh, uh, It's the Uh, crucifixion of the king. We could go in and say there's the commissioning by the king or the the, the end of it. But having said all that, where I want us to get to this morning is not just to get bogged down. Because Alex said, I said, what do you want to preach on? What do you want? He says, declare the good old gospel. Well, perhaps the call 
to repentance wasn't given so much in the Sermon on the Mount. But remember, John heralded the king's coming by calling people to repent and come because the king was coming. And he said to the scribes and the Pharisees who should have been declaring some of that, who should have been living that out, they were a generation of vipers. They were a generation of false leaders. And when they came to be baptized by an act of repentance, because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, he scolded them. Indifference from how he treated other people. He never scolded those who were genuine seekers. He rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees. So if you want to look at the content of the sermon, it's a call and it's a challenge to citizenship. It gives the guidelines as to how to live out as a citizen of the kingdom and to glorify, because ultimately, the one of the confessions of faith says, man's chief end is to glorify God before we can get to enjoying him forever. So having established that in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ gives his challenge, his call to submission and to surrender. And we've read them. The world today and the world then, we say they're all different, but the principles and the practices are not so dramatically different. Because they were self-centered then, and they're certainly self-centered today. There is that by achievement, we will be successful. And sadly, that can be the same within the Christian church. If we practice this and if we practice that and if we do this and do that and do the next thing, by our works, we will glorify. Yes, we will. But without faith, works are ineffective. And works without faith are not possible to achieve anything. So the Sermon on the Mount has to be t- given great notice, but I like how it begins. I don't want to get depressed, but this staggered, I believe, his audience. And remember his audience, if you read the text, was intended for the development of his disciples. He had called four at least, according to Matthew, before he started this sermon. We have to go later to get the full complement of twelve. But he had walked by Galilee's shore and he had called. And it says that when he was into the mountain, he had his disciples. But he did not neglect, neglect because it said that he had a crowd that followed him along those shores of Galilee. So he didn't sit down and say, you're the disciples, I'm talking to you. You are the Lord, go, and go to sleep. He talked to everyone. His teaching was for all. All had the same opportunity of hearing the full extent of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he said to introduce it. Blessed, privileged. I know we say it's happy. Well, happiness comes from that. But what it really means is you're privileged. 
You're privileged to hear the prince, the master of preachers, going to preach. He didn't project himself in that manner, except he staggered the people. Because you see, like today, they wanted to know happiness. They wanted to know satisfaction in life. They wanted to know a fullness of life, the quality of life. And our Saviour knew that. And he said, blessed. And you can read the rest of the Beatitudes for yourself. And they're not the only Beatitudes in the Bible. It was a practice that was adopted at other times by the Saviour. And he did say, blessed, from time to time later on. So having set that, in a sense, the context of where he preached, he also said this by way of prefix to what he would say and the challenges. He said, looking at the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the scribes, they professed righteousness. I wonder if that's what you and I do by coming here this morning. How righteous do you feel and how righteous do I feel? When I got down to the nitty-gritty, I felt not so righteous when I started to read through those, these, uh, this Sermon on the Mount. It's also mirrored again in the Sermon on the Plain in Matthew, in, in Luke rather. But the point I'm making is this. What is our attitude in coming this morning? Are we like the scribes and the Pharisees? And professing that we're citizens of the kingdom. Well the Lord Jesus Christ. When he got towards the end of his sermon. In a sense that's where the rubber hit the road. The rubber really hit the road there. And we read it together. And I'll dispense with all of these notes. Because there's too much in them. Because he said this by way of warning. Not everyone. Who says Lord, Lord. Shall enter the kingdom. Of heaven. A verbal claim. Without a heart experience. Is not enough. Brothers and sisters. We need to examine where we're at. As far as our citizenship. Rights are concerned. We hear a lot about human rights today. They're being debated, they're being haggled over by our authorities and a point of dispute. Let's leave them to do that, but let's pray that we who profess to represent the kingdom and the king of the kingdom know that we've entered. And I've got a challenge that came to me. Have I entered the kingdom? I trust that the confidence that Alec has put in me to stand here will be testimony that I have. However, I challenge myself afresh. Am I trying to walk through the gate, the turnstile, and go in to the right of access, still trying to carry the baggage? You see, Pilgrim and his progress, as Bunyan records, had still the back on his back when he came to the wicket gate. And that part of the scripture that we read together, verses 13 and 14, there's a gate 
and there's two roads. It says the narrow gate, it doesn't say the broad road has a gate. It says narrow is the entrance by way of a gate. But it's a costly entrance. And I'm not saying there's a price to be paid for our salvation. It's been paid. The purchase price was paid in full when Jesus cried, it is finished. It was paid in full. Tetelestai. Finished. But brothers and sisters, what kind of baggage have we got? Are we clinging on to some self-righteousness? Well, it's a narrow gate. When you go to the airport, you have a baggage limit. If you exceed it, you pay extra. Now we can put it in a wee bag and we get through. But we've got our search to go through. And I believe that that picture can be applied into this picture when you come to that wicked gate. That narrow gate and the wide gate. Are we trying to walk with some luggage that can we try to push through the gate? You see, the path that we have to go through, the Lord Jesus Christ is quite plain, plain, and he's precise and to the point. It's a narrow gate and few go in. Why? Because they're not willing to put their baggage down. And that means sometimes we cling on to our anxieties that Christ told us how to deal with them. And his manifesto. And we're still trying to deal with them in our way. But he's a gracious God. Sometimes we pick them back up again. We create them again. When we get through the narrow gate. Entrance into the kingdom the Lord Jesus Christ can only be gained by one way. And he declared it later. I am the way. Only by me. Do we still trust him the way we trusted him or professed to trust him when we first came to him? Or perhaps you've never trusted him that way. Have you really surrendered and laid the baggage of your sin down like Pilgrim when he realised it must go? It rolled where? Down, 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 down the hill till it was out of sight. Is your sin out of sight? I know we still sin. I'm asking on the confession and profession of faith. When you got to the wicked gate, when you first heard that gospel and it dawned upon you, you weren't saved. Did everything go? I trust that it has. If it hasn't, you can do it today. Jesus, I will trust you, trust you with my soul, guilty, lost and helpless, only thou canst make me whole. Will you trust him this morning and pass through the gate, through the access, because you see the alternative, and there's always an alternative, that's why it's two ways, and Jesus is setting out a choice. The Lord Jesus Christ has no qualms about asking for decisions. We might, 
Some of the big prince of preachers, like Billy Graham, and I say he's a prince of preachers, he always asked people for a decision. I'm asking you this morning, have you made your decision for the narrow way? Or are you trying to live as a citizen of the kingdom, but you're walking on the Broadway? Because you see, Jesus Christ is radical. There's no room for worldliness in his kingdom. There's no room because you see, you can't get through the turnstile if you're going to be worldly and retain it. It's impossible. So if you're professing to be in the kingdom, just check. Do a soul check. And then if you're on the broad road yet, you come to that conclusion. You can always backtrack and go in at the narrow gate. And then walk. Because then, and only then, through that narrow gate are you in the kingdom. Where is your allegiance? By faith. You walk through that gate that Jesus has done it all. But you know, once you're in the kingdom and made that choice, you have further things to do and I have further things to do. And that's depicted on the trees and the fruit. Because you see, you've stepped out on the pathway and you're experiencing the blessing. You're experiencing that blessed of the poor in heart and the spirit and so on and those who mourn over their sin. But has there been real change? Because you see there's two trees. And one, they're both planted in the soil. I was about to say the same soil. And to an extent they are. Because Jesus' parable depicts two trees almost side by side. How far down are the roots of you in the word of God. Because you see without the roots being grown in the word of God. In his will and in his way. And drawing from him and feeding on him. The tree will grow to a certain extent. But he's looking not just for a growth in the tree. He's looking for the fruit on the tree. And the difference is that either you bear, bear good fruit or bad fruit. And he's quite clear. If it's a good tree, he's expecting good fruit. If it's a bad tree, he has no qualms about saying it will only produce bad fruit. And brothers and sisters, that's a challenge. Are we growing? But more importantly, are we producing fruit? Jesus came one day to a fig tree. Oh, there were plenty of leaves. There was plenty of show. But there should have been fruit because it was the season for fruit. So this parable was that the fruit would be to the glory of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ was saying, if it's not sorted out by the gardener, that's how trees flourish. That's how plants flourish. If you're a gardener, you tend them and you care for them, you prune them, you feed them, you water them, you cherish them, and they grow, and they're given abundance and a glory, because sometimes they're flower, oh, to have flowers in our life. 
Go into Galatians and find out what the fruit of the Spirit is like. We haven't time for it today, but read it and ask ourselves, are we producing it? Love, joy, peace, and it goes on and on. But it also tells us when the Spirit is not there, it's producing bad fruit. So we're either producing because the Spirit of God is active in our lives or the spirit of Satan is still rampant in our lives. And as Christians, it's so easy to succumb to the spirit of Satan. Each of us, I spoke with someone yesterday morning at the breakfast. There was a gentleman gave his testimony and after it, in a short conversation, I was thrilled when two people they didn't come to speak to me. It just came out of the conversation. And I'll pass it on. We rejoiced in the testimony of a transformed life from all the addictions. But you know, one man particularly <coughs> whom another Christian brother, when I had asked him a number of weeks or months ago about him, when he always came to the men's breakfast, I said, how is he? Where does he? How is he spiritually? And the brother said, I'm not sure. Well, I was thrilled yesterday morning when we got into conversation, just, and I'm not going into detail about it. He said, you know, that's the power of the blood. That's the power of the blood and the power of the gospel. <coughs> now, my mouth didn't quite drop open. But because of what someone had said, I was thrilled at this. And that's the second time it's happened after the breakfast or during it. That somebody that perhaps someone else, a brother or in the Lord had said, I don't know where he is and I'm not so sure about him. And I had the same viewpoint because someone else knew him better than me. But oh, the thrill to hear him talk. A spiritual talk, and it was from here, I believe, when he looked in his, it was in his eyes. And the other brother said, I'm going to have a testimony. He says, I wish I could write it down, but I'm a wee bit dyslexic. And then he, t he, t he said, I've never told the family this. And whether it was the, because of the preacher or the speaker, I don't know, he then said, and he didn't need to confess to me. But it reminded me that I wasn't much better than him at times and he told me something he says but I want to tell it now I want to tell because I'm getting on and he has got a little bit of touch of dementia I discovered in the conversation and I'm, I'm talking behind his back but I do it confidently without you knowing who it is but so the thrill to hear someday say that they were changed and they were growing. And that was the beauty of meeting with some people and experience now. There's a change. There's a cost. Get rid of the baggage. There's a change that's expected. The entrance has been made because the cost has been paid. <clears throat> There's a change because the Saviour expects it. And by his spirit, it's capable of producing it. I must run on and get on because I'm going to get lost. But 
The other thing that the Lord Jesus Christ always asks and challenges is this. Are you constructing? Having entered, have the cost being paid? Are you changing because indeed you are building and you're feeding? But on that last uh, parable, there's two builders, two houses, two foundations. They've got the same desire. <clears throat> they want to build a house. They've got the same opportunity because they're not <clears throat> excuse me, an even plane. That's what comes to me. Same opportunity. But they can't turn out differently. One digs and digs till he hits the solid rock and makes sure he's standing on the rock that we sang about. With the other, well, his construction isn't so good because you see he's still walking in the ways of the world. He's still content with the superficial, with the surface profession, with the surface and the shoddy foundation. His construction methods aren't good. Brothers and sisters, are we building? Are we building a house that will stand? The chorus sometimes says, the wise man, taking it literally, built his house upon the rock, and the winds came. Brothers and sisters were not promised. The Lord Jesus Christ never promised us. He told us right at the beginning when we were ready to enter. Go in at the narrow gate and it's a hard way. So if you and I come in in any other self-deceptive way that it's going to be easy, we're doomed for failure. It's going to be tough. Because the winds of adversity will come. The winds of anxiety will come. They'll become winds of opposition. And we'll wonder what the Lord's doing to us. But if the plant of the building is on the rock, it's a faith that will stand. But if you're on the shoddy surface and you're on the sand, see what happens. Well, there's a punishment for the tree that produces bad fruit. And the punishment for the tree that produces bad fruit that's cut down and it's put in the fire. For the one who's on the broad road, the broad road starts wide, but it narrows to a dead end. Literally, a dead end. In hell. The narrow way starts narrow, but oh, that blessedness can open out. Till it reaches heaven with all its splendor and all its riches and all its entitlements. And the building, the building that's on the rock stands firm. But the building that's on the sand falls 
And see what Jesus says. Jesus says, great will be the fall. But glorious in contrast will be that building that rises solid on the rock. I've got to finish. The purpose in the sermon is hinged, I believe, not in the fact that we can embrace the principles, but that we get the starting point right. We get the continuation right. And we get the faith that will see the right conclusion come. But I want to say this in conclusion. There's two destinations, two directions. There's two types of fruit. There's two types of building. Don't bank on a third one. Don't bank on a middle one. Because it doesn't exist. And if you're banking on the third one being a, a, a second chance option. After time has been called in your life or mine. It doesn't exist. The Lord Jesus Christ is clear and plain. He's calling for a decision. Which way will you go? What kind of tree will you be like? What kind of foundations and construction are you laying and building? You see, two kinds of people are depicted in all of these. You're either saved or you're lost. Which are you this morning? I trust that all, as we say, brothers and sisters, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll have to leave it there. I apologise. I've gone so long. But let's pray. Father, we thank you that although you give us instructions for our Christian life, you still anticipate that we will be obedient and we'll trust and that our faith will grow and we will indeed glorify you in our daily lives. Thank you for this church and fellowship. May indeed there be glory gotten to your name in it and outside it and beyond into the community. Bless us now as we come to conclude with our closing hymn that we'll sing uh, that we want the glory to go to our God. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn which is To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Let's stand and sing it. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate and look at it that all may go in. He doesn't include, exclude you. You exclude yourself. Let's stand and sing to God's glory. Amen.